you turn in your Bibles with me, our study will be from the book of Jonah. And our scripture reading will come from Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, all the way through to the end of chapter 3. We continue our study in the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17, through the end of chapter 3. We were introduced to this prophet last week, this rather rebellious, ornery, difficult, compassionless prophet who desired his own agenda and ran from the call of God in disobedience. This morning we will be looking at his repentance and the repentance of the city of Nineveh. Jonah chapter 1, we begin reading at verse 17. The scriptures read, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God, while I was fainting away. I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in, on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let man call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent 
and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our Father in heaven, you desire that we have a life of repentance. We pray, God, that you would open the eyes of our heart once again, that we might see great and mighty things from thy precious word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There is a story of a shoplifter, and this shoplifter wrote a note to a department store, and that note said, quote, I've just become a Christian. I can't sleep at night because I feel guilty. So, here's the $100 that I owe you. And he signs his name. The bottom, he says, P.S., if I can't still sleep, I'll send you the rest. <laughs> Genuine repentance is hard to find as people seek to assuage their consciences. There is an article that was written entitled, Whatever Became of Repentance? When Mark Galilei writes about how Martin Luther in October 31, 1517 posted 95 theses or the disputation on the power of indulgences on the door of All Saints Church, Wittenberg. He was, the, he was the professor of moral theology at the University of Wittenberg, I should say. And what he was proposing was that he was proposing an academic debate about indulgences. And indulgences were the, the practice of doing good works or offering money in order to remove punishment for sin. And Martin Luther was concerned on how indulgences encourage people to pay, to pay for forgiveness rather than to repent. Instead, Luther argued, quote, our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, when he said, repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. Today, that is a hard pill to swallow. We are not the first to take notice of how absent that theme is, that theme of repentance, as there was a best-selling book in 1988 that was written entitled, Whatever Became of Sin, it could have had a sequel entitled, Whatever Became of Repentance. The author of that article noted that repentance is unpopular because we're addicted, quote-unquote, to justifying our own actions or pointing out the evils that others do. He writes that if I really looked at my own self-centeredness and pride, I'd have to admit that I am also a hypocrite and a moral failure. And he concludes, that is why the word repentance is usually connected to the phrase good news. As Mark highlights in his summary of Jesus' early preaching, repent and believe the good news, Mark 1.15, unquote. Jonah chapter 2 and Jonah chapter 3 is all about the repentance of Jonah and the repentance of the great city of Nineveh. And last week, we were introduced to this prophet, this prophet whose name was Jonah, a rebellious missionary, an ornery, difficult, prejudiced missionary, perhaps the most prejudiced, the most difficult recorded in the Bible. Of all of the 12 minor prophets, which are at the end of the Old Testament, minor meaning simply that they are shorter in their length, he is probably the most well-known appearing in many children's books. The account is popularly known as Jonah and the whale, although it may or may not have been a whale. 
Most people know about Jonah being swallowed up by a big fish. But the main point of the book is not about the miracle of Jonah being able to survive three days and three nights in a big fish, nor is it about him being a rebellious and a difficult prophet whom God still uses. That is not the main theme of the book, although we learn quite a bit from his attitude of what not to be. The main theme of the book, I believe, is about the greatness of God's compassion upon the lost. It is about the greatness of God's compassion upon those who are not saved. And God used a man such as Jonah. Why? Because in contrast, Jonah was filled with animosity towards his enemies who had nothing of compassion, nothing of grace towards those who were his enemies, and it simply showcased God's great grace all the more. God's grace, his compassion upon the lost, in particular against the enemies of Israel in the city of Nineveh, is the big picture theme of the book. God's greatness and his compassion upon those who do not know him. When we look at the prophet Jonah, we might look at him as we've gone through chapter one and we might think to ourselves, well, Jonah's reaction is completely understandable. After all, if we were called to go to North Korea or we were called to go to Iran and tell the supreme leader this message that they are sinners and that their country is going to fall in 40 days, we might be hesitant too as it might be viewed as a suicide mission. And the Assyrians, back in those days, were the enemy. They were a violent enemy. They were a despised enemy of Israel. They were the worst. If you thought ISIS was bad, they would make ISIS look good in comparison to the things that they did to their enemies. Skinning people alive, using psychological warfare of all different types, their sins against Israel, however, paled in comparison to their sins against God. And rather than seeing the Assyrians, Jonah did, rather than seeing the Assyrians as the people who were in bondage to sin, rather than looking upon them with compassion, rather than desiring that they would come to know the Savior, Jonah would rather have had them wiped off the face of the earth. For him, fire and brimstone and what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah would have made him happy. But last week we learned, as we looked at the profile of this man named Jonah, that we too can be very much like him. Rather than give our time and energy to share the gospel, rather than making ourselves known that we are a Christian, rather than reaching out to those who are lost, rather than having eyes of compassion to people that we see on the street or our coworkers, we turn a blind eye. We ignore. We make ourselves indisposed. We make excuses and say, I didn't notice, or I never knew that they were a Christian. Maybe it's because we never asked them. Never seek to tell others that we are believers or followers of Christ. Why? Because we've got our own agenda. We've got our own life. We've got our own little bubble in which we feel comfortable with. And we have our own little prejudices. We have our own biases. We have our own self-focused, self-oriented, sinful self-righteousness, and we fail to love people and have compassion for the lost as God does. And we fear what they may think of us more than we fear God. The question that we ended last week that should have been is how much compassion do we have for the lost? 
Is God calling us to do something that we've never done, that we have been putting off, somebody God has called us to reach, somebody that we have wronged or judged or bypassed, making an excuse to say that we're too busy? How much do you want to be the bearer of God's bad news that you might tell somebody also the good news of Christ? We looked at Jonah last week and we saw perhaps profile of our own selves looking into the mirror of the Word of God. But Jonah was called. He was called to this great city of Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrians. The location today is in the modern-day city of Mosul, which you've heard in the news. The people of Assyria were exceedingly wicked. They were exceedingly wicked. They were cruel. They were vicious. They were full of pride. And at the thunderous, at the thunderous marching of their armies which would number hundreds of thousands of people would shake because of the fear that would come upon them. And Jonah was called, Jonah was called to preach to these people. The only missionary who was called outside of the land of Israel to go to a foreign people. Called to the mission field and he ran in the opposite direction, fleeing from the presence of God. Why? Chapter 4 verse 2 tells us why. Jonah tells him, he says, I knew, chapter 4, verse 2, that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. I don't want them, I don't want them to be saved. I want them to face judgment. I want them to face calamity, was his thinking. I know you are a gracious and compassionate God, and I don't want you to extend any of that towards them. Why? Because they're deserving of what they got coming. So he bound, boarded a ship, set sail for Tarshish with others, likely the Phoenicians, crossed the Mediterranean, and got through that ship into a violent storm on the sea. The sailors began throwing things overboard in order to lighten the ship so that it might not be torn apart, casting their things out to sea, praying to their gods while the indifference of Jonah, he could care less. He went down below and slept. He went down below and slept and the captain came and asked why he wasn't praying to his God. And Later on, they cast lots in order to determine the guilty party was Jonah because he was running from God, because he was running from God. They said, what should we do? He said, toss me overboard. But even in the midst of that supernatural storm, those sailors had greater compassion upon him and didn't throw him overboard. They tried to row. They tried to row ashore rather than throwing him overboard. But finally, when the storm they could not overcome, they prayed to God for God's mercy. They begged of God. They saw it as an as a act of killing him. They finally relented and threw Jonah overboard, tossed him into the sea, and the storm immediately stopped. Later on, they gave thanksgiving to God. So that brings us to chapter 2 and chapter 3. When we see the provision of God, the repentance of Jonah, and the repentance of Nineveh. The provision of God, verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. It wasn't Jonah's time to die. He wanted to die. The sailors thought that he would die. They threw him overboard. He could care less about living, but this was God's provision. 
God appointed, God appointed a great fish. Sometimes, and the reason why, by the way, it's called the story you'll hear is Jonah and the whale sometimes is because in the King James Version, in the King James Version, when they quoted or when they translated Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, they translated that verse in which Jesus quotes Jonah, and it says whale in that translation. And King James has been around, that, that version has been around for a long time, and so became known as uh, Jonah and the whale. But now the new King James Version translates it differently. It translates it, great fish. So if you grew up with the King James Version, or you use some curriculum that is by that, uh, by that version, you'll see it's Jonah and the whale. But it could or may not have been. Some believe this particular word, this word meaning that is uh, appointed or ordained, It's a word that is used four times in the book of Jonah, and it points to the fact that God has complete control over all of creation. God has complete control over all of creation. And some think that perhaps this particular fish was specially created. We don't know. Could have been some large existing fish. Could have been specially created for Jonah on this occasion. But in either case, he was swallowed, literally, by a great fish. He was literally swallowed by a great fish. It is very sad to see critics who write and they say, look, all of this is a tall tale. This is a fictional story used to communicate a a, a truth. Maybe it allegorized into Israel being swallowed up by Babylon, whatever it may be, but it's not historical, they'll argue. It's not told in a historical account, but no, they doubt it. And some say, this is why I don't believe in the Bible. It's because this couldn't have happened. That's what critics say. People will use this particular passage. But we believe it is literal. We believe that, G- that Jonah was swallowed by a fish. In fact, it is the Lord Jesus himself who quotes it as literal. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Quoting it as that is how he will be in the grave three days and three nights. He quotes it as a historical account, taking the time frame as a historical three days and three nights. And by the way, some find that as another hiccup, three days and three nights as some sort of difficulty. It is interesting to note when you take that, Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah, he wrote back in AD 100, about the time that the last book of the New Testament was written, He says, quote, a day and a night make an onah, or 24-hour period, and the portion of an onah is reckoned as a complete onah. In other words, any part of that 24 hours a day, we call it a day and a night. So when people say, well, Jesus went into the grave on Friday, and, you know, he died on Friday, rose on Sunday, that's only two days. They're stuck on our understanding of a 24-hour day as a literal 24-hour day, but as the rabbi would write, he would say, any time, it's a figure of speech, any day and a night means any portion of that day. It could be 11.59 when somebody is counting, and that would be a day and a night. Three days and three nights. Let's not be stuck on the 24-hour chronological view that we might have and understand from their point of view, a day and a night would be any portion of that day. And so Jonah was inside of that fish and he comes to the edge of death. God saves him. God provides for him inside the belly of that fish and he prays a prayer of repentance in Jonah chapter 2. 
Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, verse 1, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried from, for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. Now notice what he says in verse 3. He recognizes that all of this is from God. His distress, the storm, even the sailors who cast him into the sea was by the hand of God, for you had cast me into the deep. Notice he doesn't say the sailors. Into the heart of the sea. And the current engulfed me. All your breakers, and implied your billows, passed over me. God is the one. God is the one who brings about calamity as well as blessing. He brings about all sorts of meteorological events. He's the one who controls even those who cast him into the sea. God is the one who brought about this discipline upon Jonah, just as it would be that God brings about discipline upon those that he loves. God brings about discipline upon those that he loves. This reluctant prophet whom God saved from certain death, there he was, in the belly of this giant fish, sloshing about in all of those gastric juices, with all of the seaweed it stays here, wrapped around his head. He was to the point of death, all of that debris, all of that half-digested other fish, whatever it was, the dark, putrid, pungent, stuffy stomach for three days. And there he prayed, verse 6. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He recognizes God as the God of salvation. Verse 7. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, and I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. His prayer was out of giving thanks. His prayer was vowing to do what he had called, been called to do. Jonah recognizes that it is the Lord whom he has sinned against. It is the Lord who brought about judgment, and he gives thanks. He gives thanks. The one who is humble, who recognizes God's sovereignty, the one who is humble, who recognizes that it is God that he has sinned against, the one who recognizes that it is God who has saved him by providing this fish, he gives thanks. He gives thanks. You realize at this point in time, he had no idea whether or not he was going to be saved in terms of whether or not he was going to live even more. But he knew he was alive at that time. He didn't know if he would continue to be digested. He didn't know if his prayers would be heard, but he gave thanks. He gave thanks. The question for you and I, perhaps, is do you give thanks in all circumstances as is the will of God in Christ Jesus? 1 Thessalonians 5.18. That is God's will for your life. Are you thankful even when there are problems in life? Do you give thanks to God when there are difficulties in life because you think in James chapter 1 how those problems, how those trials bring about godliness in your life? That God has permitted those things to come as a refining fire to your life that you might be more like Christ? Do you give thanks? you give thanks? Are you a person who is grateful, who gives thanks to God, who would just say, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving? 
With a heart of repentance, Jonah recognizes that every moment that he has to live is by the grace of God sitting there in the belly of a fish. Then, verse 10, after his repentance, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. I'm sure the fish felt much better. You sat and something was undigested for three days and still squirming around in your stomach for three days, you would feel so much better too. <laughs> and unlike Jonah, unlike Jonah, the fish immediately obeyed the Lord. No hesitancy, no debating, no whining about, why don't you let me eat humans? No, he vomited up Jonah. The Jonah, he comes out. And he gets close enough to some beach, he vomits him out, and there Jonah is. You can imagine, there Jonah is. He's probably bleached white because of all the gastric juices, with all the weeds, seaweed hanging from his head, tattered clothing, draped in his body, reeks of fish. Reeks of fish. And I'm sure you just can't shower that out immediately. And he, simply put, would live that way for some time. You know, one of the things is, even though one has genuine repentance, it doesn't always deliver you from the consequences of sin. You reap what you sow. There are things in life that are built in, in which we sin, and we will reap those consequences because of our sin. We may genuinely repent. In the case of Nineveh, God, God relented and did not bring about some of the consequences, but you know what? We do. We do face the consequences of our sin. But here stands a thankful prophet, a thankful prophet who is going to follow the word of God, as we see in chapter 3. Verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Isn't God gracious? Isn't God gracious to give him a second chance? I mean, here was a prejudicial prophet that was a terrible example who could care less if he died. He would rather die than go and preach to Nineveh. It surely would have been more, more easy for God just to simply find somebody else. The prophet was just a rather hard knows prophet, but God grants to him a second chance. He chose Jonah, and he calls Jonah a second time. And God is a gracious God who gives to each of us chance after chance after chance after chance. He very well could just snuff out our life and say, that is enough. He could very well discipline you and I very harshly even when we take communion, I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when some might be taking communion and they know there's sin in their life, and even though the warning says that to some, God put to sleep, he snuffed out their life for mocking the table of the Lord, and yet God is gracious so often to us to let us give us time to come and repent, to turn from our sin. God says to Jonah, he gives him the second chance. He says to him, arise and go. Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am giving to you. And what did he do? He arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Verse 3. 
Now Nineveh was exceedingly great, exceedingly great. We, last time we learned how large of a city this was, how large of a city this was in the world at that time. Walls almost eight miles long. And if you include the entire surrounding district, the entire district of Nineveh around that area would be 60 miles in circumference. But the walls of the city were about eight miles long. The population of the city was some 600,000, up to a million people. We know that from the last passage in chapter 4. Later on, we'll look at that. But here he begins to preach. And he had a very short sermon. It didn't take long for him to figure out what to say. God told him. It's only five words in the Hebrew text. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Just five words. I mean, can you imagine that? It's like going to Mosul when ISIS had taken charge of that city. Going there and saying, you're all going to die. You're all doomed. The city will be overthrown. You're all going to die. You're all going to die. I can imagine I'd be the first to die. Somebody shoot me. Such a simple message, but it didn't take much time. And it was a message of judgment. It was a message of doom. It was a message of God's great judgment, great calamity, a message of warning to them. And that is our message as well, isn't it? That is our message in the gospel, a message of judgment to come, a message of doom. Some of you remember a long time ago, you remember they used to have the kingdom. I mean, I grew up going to the kingdom, watching the Mariners and all that. That, that, that kingdom was around for 25 years. And in the year 2000, they decided they were going to uh, take it down. It was taken down by uh, this company called Controlled Demolition Incorporated. And that kingdom was where they had, you know, the Mariners and the Seahawks played there and all of these things. And it had marked this landscape of Seattle for some 25 years. Ever since I was born, it, it was there. And they took extreme measures when they took down that huge stadium made of, it just looked like a, you know, a concrete crockpot. <laughs> it was huge. And what they did was they put all of these explosives down on the middle, but they took extraordinary measures. They evacuated blocks around that city. Uh, around that area, blocks around that city, and they would make sure that there was no individual that, were, that was in there. And they had a timer in which they would have a, this countdown, and they, were, they, had a, they had a system by which they could stop it at any time if there was any concerns. And all the workers were individually accounted for by radio. And a large public address system was put out there and was used to announce the final countdown. And they took every reasonable measure to make sure that people were not in danger. And people could watch. They could stand on the bridge all the way in Beacon Hill, which is, I don't know, maybe a mile away or so, to watch the implosion. People would watch on TV because it was going to be huge. And a lot of people watched that. The Bible teaches us of that same idea that judgment will come. Judgment will come. And we are to spare no expense to make sure everybody we can tell to get out safely. That is the gospel message. The gospel message is good news. But you don't know how good the news is unless you know how bad the news is first. The gospel is that you and I are sinners who have offended a holy God. 
And you and I are destined to hell because of our sin. But the good news is that God loved the world that he gave his only son, that he died for our sins in our place, that anyone who would turn from repentance to Christ and place their faith and trust in Jesus would be saved from their sin, would have been given eternal life. Jesus saves, but you don't know how good and what he saved you from unless you know how bad of a future you would have without Christ. What happened as Jonah went around the city and preached? Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The people, verse 5, of Nineveh believed in God believed in God, and they called the fast. There's that little phrase. We've talked about it in Sunday school where there's this belief, amen, bait, in God, believed in God. They embraced God. This is the same uh, kind of phrasing that's used in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, when it says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The people of Nineveh believed in God. They called the fast. They called the fast. This is, the, this is what happened. They, they called the fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. Then the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from the throne. It implies that the, that the word that, that Jonah preached began with the common people, and then finally it went up and went up and finally reached the king, and he, he made a proclamation. Everybody, every man, beast, herd, flock, not taste a thing. No water, no food, nothing. Everything covered with sackcloth. Let all men call upon God earnestly and turn, turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. And this was indicative of the Assyrians. They were a very violent people. What they did, what they did to those who were their enemies, was unspeakable. They would skewer their enemies. It was terrible. Who knows, verse 9, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. The expression of their faith was in their repentant actions. They put on sackcloth. That's a coarse cloth that's made of, a, 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 of goat's hair. It was customary to dress the poor in that. It was customary when people were mourning, they wore sackcloth. And they believed that the message was everyone was to display. Everyone was to display a contrite heart, a repentant attitude. Even among pagan nations, they included the animals in this sort of self-abasement. That's how pagans did it. Not people who were Jews, but... They had this self-abasement, they had this humiliation, they humbled themselves before God and displayed it in this outward manner. Now, there are some scholars, some commentators, I'm sure that you'll read, that disagree, that say, well, this is only a temporary, this is only a temporary repent, repentance. It staved off God's judgment, and history shows, they'll say, that this was not genuine. The commentators and say, will say, well, look, uh, you know, there's no evidence in, in archaeological history or whatnot that this sort of thing happened, that they became a big, huge, you know, God-fearing city. But there are a number of things that would argue against that because I believe this is the greatest revival numerically in all of the Bible here up to the Old Testament we might find a greater one, of course, when we come to the book of Revelation, but 
Here up to this point in time, even when Peter preached, there were 3,000 that came to know Christ and then 5,000 that came to know Christ. But here you have hundreds of thousands of people as a generality, and I don't know if it's every single man, woman, child, but as a generality, the city turned. Not only based upon what it says here, Nineveh believed in God, which is pretty explicit. That phrase is always used as a, as a means to indicate that one placed their trust and faith in God. But the repentance, the repentance mirrored that which would have been uh, understandable to a Hebrew practice of a contrite, of a genuine contrite heart. If you were still a pagan and you were still going to show some type of repentance, you'd be offering sacrifices, you'd be offering libations, you'd be saying these long prayers and prostrating yourselves before your, your pagan gods, hoping that they wouldn't skewer you. But in addition, Jesus, in Luke chapter 11, verse 32, Luke chapter 11, verse 32, it says, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. The religious leaders, you see, the religious leaders, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment and condemn it for, Jesus says, they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater Jonah is here. The men of Nineveh repented, and you don't repent, Jesus says to the Jews. He doesn't, he doesn't say, well, you know what, they had a phony repentance. You should have the same phony repentance. Maybe it'll stave off God's judgment upon you. No. These Gentile pagans believed God. They believed the preaching of Jonah. They believed God, and they showed genuine repentance. And God would have seen through any hypocritical or superficial repentance. And some cricketers say, well, look, there's no, 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 no evidence in history. What Commentator Billy Smith, he writes, quote, if Jonah's visit occurred around the reign of Jeroboam II in Israel, the next subsequent mention of the Syrian empire was some 30 or 40 years later. In other words, there are lengthy periods of time, he states, in which there is no historical record about the moral conduct of Nineveh. It very well could have fit within that 30 or 40 year period. History could have very well accounted for that generation, that generation of Ninevites who heard the preaching of Jonah to have turned to God. How could so many people be open to the message of Jonah? Well, we might ascribe some measure of context here. We know that they turned ultimately because of God's work in their heart, that God is the one who causes people to repent. He draws them to himself. They come to know him because of his power and solely because of that. But there is a context in which Nineveh at that time did have a national crisis. There was a famine. There were internal revolts. There was a number of enemy attacks. There was a full eclipse of the sun. And all of that perhaps prepared their heart. But a hardened heart is ultimately opened by God. God opened their heart in repentance. And what happened? Verse 10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. God chose not to bring destruction upon the city. God chose not to bring about what he had for them, that destruction, 
They turned, notice, they turned, it is highlighted, they turned from their wickedness. He saw their deeds, he saw all that they did. They wore sackcloth, they prayed, they, they called upon God, their animals wore sackcloth, nobody ate or drank any water or food. But what is highlighted here is that they turned from their wickedness, a display of genuine repentance. And it is not unheard of in the Old Testament for God to turn away his hand from judgment. After all, Jeremiah 18 says this. Jeremiah 18, verse 7. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, or to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. God basically says through Jeremiah, if there's a judgment and those people repent, I will relent. What do we learn then? What do we learn from this passage is this. God calls us to a life. God calls us to a life of genuine and godly repentance. God calls us to a life of genuine and godly repentance. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 7.10. 2 Corinthians 7.10, the scriptures tell us, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. There's a difference, but Paul makes a distinction. The sorrow that is according to the will of God and the sorrow of the world. There's a difference between godly sorrow that is according to the will of God and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is like remorse. People may feel bad, they may feel remorseful. They may feel bad because of the consequences of their sin. They sin and they feel bad because they've hurt somebody else. They feel bad because they've affected so many others. Maybe they've been troubled by something that they have done. They certainly don't feel good. They may even confess their sin. That's the extent of remorse though. It's simply the feeling bad about it. But godly sorrow, on the other hand, Paul writes about, leads to repentance. And repentance is not simply feeling bad about something that we have done. Repentance comes from the word that means a change of mind, but it also results in a change of life, a change in direction, a change in the decision that I'm going to do something about this so that I will not sin again. New Testament, that word means to change one's mind. It means to feel regret, feel remorse, but it's also that which is a change of heart attitude, to turn around, to convert, to go another direction. That's what repentance means, that I'm going to do something different so that I don't sin in this way again. For many, they just confess. They continue to do not wanting to truly repent. And this tr has tremendous implications. This little distinction has tremendous implications on how we counsel, how we help others, how we minister to others in the body or other people who are Christian brothers or sisters who come to us and they say, I have this problem or I, I know this is happening and I just really, what do I do about this or that? The first thing, of course, is to confess and recognize that as sin and to confess that sin. And when we recognize it, we have the opportunity for the solution, which is to repent and that fruit of repentance to make things right. John Alexander in the book The Other Side writes, sin 
is the best news there is because with sin, there's a way out. You can't repent of confusion or psychological flaws inflicted by your parents. You're stuck with them. But you can repent of sin. Sin and repentance are the only grounds for hope and joy. The grounds for reconciled, joyful relationships. I need to recognize that I am sick, for example. If I am sick or if I have a disease, I need to recognize that so that I can take whatever medication or whatever is necessary to get well. But if I live in some sort of fantasy that, you know what, I'm fine, all I need is more sleep, I'm just not eating right or whatever it is, and that sickness continues to ravage my body, there is no hope. That is why sin is such good news because it brings about a solution from God. Jay Adams writes, quote, the task of the Christian counselor is to call for repentance, which is a call for change, a change of mind leading to a change of life. In true repentance, the Holy Spirit always affects change. Paul described this when he said that he preached to the Gentiles in the hope that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to the repentance, Acts 26.20. In the book entitled The Walk of Repentance, it reads, quote, when a person is confronted with sin in his life, whether in person or by a loved one, by a message from the pulpit, or even just by reading the word, he is faced with making a decision about this information. He's faced with a decision that he has to make. There's a sin in one's life, you have to make a decision. Like one of my friends would often say when I shared a problem with them, they would say, well, what are you going to do about it? Some people just like to share their problems, but they don't want to have any solution. They just like to talk or slander others. When you hear the word, it continues to write, when you hear the word, you must decide what you will do with it. Either you will repent of your sin or you will go into delusion. Some sort of fantasy land where you're okay and it's others' fault. Genuine repentance does not blame others. Genuine repentance does not delay or put it off forever. Genuine repentance doesn't justify oneself. Genuine repentance doesn't minimize it and say, oh, it's you know, really not that big of a deal. You're making a big deal out of nothing. Or it doesn't even attack other people. Genuine repentance responds with humility, recognizing one's own sin. And secondly, deciding there is going to be a different path I will take in my actions and my attitudes. Jonah repented in the belly of the fish, and he went to preach to the Ninevites. Nineveh repented, and God displayed his grace. They changed. Stop your wicked ways, the king decreed. They humbled themselves. And the question for you and I today is, is this a walk of repentance that we are having? Is there something in your life that the Spirit of God has been convicting you of over and over? And yes, you just do it, and you'll confess, thinking all is well, but you've never, never repented, truly can repented and turned from your sin. Turn from that attitude. Turn from that harboring. Turn from that love of something in the world. Turn from your own way. And turn to God. 
Because when we sin, we forsake the blessing of God. We forsake what God has for us. He desires the best. Jesus illustrates genuine repentance when he told this parable. Some trusted in themselves and were righteous. Two men, he says, went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and he prayed to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I pay tithe of all I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified, made right with God, declared right rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. His repentance showed in his attitude, an attitude of humility, willing to recognize and say, God, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, to change your ways. God is gracious. God is a compassionate God. And you know what? God already knows your sin. God already knows what you struggle with. God already knows what you love. He wants something better for your life, satisfaction that will come and joy that will be eternal. He wants to grant to us that that life that he has always desired, a life like Christ, when we repent. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks. It is your spirit that produces within us repentance, and it is you who is so very patient, who grants to us chance after chance after chance to correct our attitudes, to correct our actions, not to do those things which displease you again and again. Oh, Father, we pray for the help of your Spirit that we might walk a life of genuine repentance. In Jesus' name.